women are not objects. Women are not objects. They have been sold. Many are selling themselves now on their own volition, on social media sites. But women are not objects. Worshiping fallen creation rather than perfect creator makes you more like broken creation and not the creator. What I'm saying is idolatry, anything worshiping anyone or anything other than God, idolatry, leads to dehumanization, dehumanizing others. And dehumanization leads to evil acts, usually first to who? Women and children. From illicit images to prostitution to neglect to abandonment to assault and endangerment. Familiar. Sadly familiar for us of the ways we know how women have been objectified in our world. But our, our society is not even content with those we keep making up new ones finding new ways to objectify women. Idolatry dehumanizes. Usually when we talk about objectification, we're talking about the sexual exploitation of women. But to be honest, think about a man suing the Olympics so he can compete in women's swimming. It's not what we're used to, but that's treating a woman like an object. I can't compete against men, so I'll defeat women. Men can objectify women in many ways and vice versa, but today we have a heavy story of the former. So Judges 19, we're walking through this whole chapter. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one around you, maybe underneath your seat. I want you to see it the first, like, fifth of the Bible. Do Joshua, Judges, Ruth, if you're in that, Samuel, Kings, come back. Judges, Judges 19, verse 1. In those days, <coughs> in those days, when there was no king in Israel, a Levite staying in a remote part of the hill country of Ephraim acquired a woman from Bethlehem in Judah as his concubine. Now, concubine is second-class wife. Which raises the question, does he have other wives? If not, if not, why is she his first, second-class wife? Why is she not treated as a normal wife? Question's not really answered, but maybe uh, an implicit reference to her age. Repeatedly, she's called a young woman, and then she runs back to her father's house. But we don't know, but she's a concubine, this Levite has. Last week and the last two weeks, what have we seen? The corruption of the worship of the people of God, right? That it even got to the, now we're, we're talking about, the, the, the story has moved in time of the moral, ethical corruption of the people. But again, we're, it's a Levite as the, as the story or the count. A different Levite than last, but again, a Levite. Verse two, but she was unfaithful to him 
and left him for her father's house at Bethlehem of Judah. She was there for four months. Unfaithful to him. Some translate that as she played the part of a prostitute. Um, it's, it's uncertain. It's uncertain. It, it can't in the, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's actually to be angry with. So we don't know exactly what happened, but she left. Maybe she's angry with, with what that she's his wife. But she goes back to her father's house. Then her husband got up after four months. Husband got up and followed her to speak kindly to her and bring her back. Other questions. Is he patiently waiting? Is he patiently waiting? Does he not care? Does he now only care four months later because he's missing his relationship with her? Particularly physical? We don't know. He had a servant with him and a pair of donkeys, so she brought him to her father's house, and when the girl's father saw him, he gladly welcomed him. His father-in-law, the girl's father, detained him, and he stayed with them for three days. They ate, drank, and spent the nights there. On the fourth day, they got up early in the morning and prepared to go. But the girl's father said to his son-in-law, have something to eat to keep up your strength, and, and then you can go. So they sat down, and the two of them ate and drank together. Then the girl's father said to the man, please agree to stay overnight and enjoy yourself. The man got up to go, but his father-in-law persuaded him, so he stayed and spent the night there again. He got up early in the morning on the fifth day to leave, but the girl's father said to him, please keep up your strength. So they waited until late afternoon, and the two of them ate. The man got up to go with his concubine and his servant when his father-in-law, the girl's father, said to him, look, night is coming. Please spend the night. See, the day's almost over. Spend the night here. Enjoy yourself. Then you can get up early tomorrow for your journey and go home. Now that word detained is, is hard to make sense of because you, you, you've got two options. You've got this is generous, this is generous hospitality beyond even what, what uh, Abraham showed as like the kind of standard of ancient Eastern standards of hospitality in Genesis 18. Like he goes beyond that. So this is generous hospitality or it's, you know, manipulation. We're not sure. Just keep trying to keep them, trick them, keep them as long as he can to make sure his desire is okay. She's going to be safe. She's going to be okay. You can see that that protection may be there or, or maybe just generous. Again, we, we don't know. But the man was unwilling to spend the night. He got up, departed, and arrived opposite Jebus. That is Jerusalem. The man had his two saddled donkeys and his concubine with him. When they were near Jebus, and the day was almost gone, the servant said to his master, Please, why not let us stop at this Jebusite city and spend the night here? But the Levite, his master, replied to him, we will not stop at a foreign city where there are no Israelites. Let's move on to Gibeah. Come on, he said. Let's try to reach one of these places and spend the night in Gibeah or Ramah. So they continued on the journey in there, and the sun set as they neared Gibeah and Benjamin. They stopped to go in and spend the night in Gibeah. The Levite went in and sat down in the city square, but no one, took them into their home to spend the night. All right, so 
His wife has left. So he goes, gets her, gets detained, held up, but now he's going back home. And timing is of mass importance in this story. But they leave really late, so they don't get to travel as far as they normally would. So they really only land up in Gibeah because the father held them up so father-in-law held them up so long. And so they leave late, don't get to track as much as they want to. But they, they trek another nine or ten kilometers after the Jebus to get to Gibeah. But the sad thing is they voided foreign Canaanites to find safety and hospitality. We'll go to a city of Israelites, is his thinking, is his statement. Then they get there, and after five days of hospitality from the father-in-law, they get nothing. They walk through the house, they walk through the city, no one talks, talks to them, no one offers them in, so they just go to the gate of the city, kind of the public square, sit down, and are like, like, is this a doctor's waiting room? Like, what's happening? How long are we going to sit here? No one's going to offer us a place to stay. Now, this, this does feel wildly foreign to us, right? We're like, yeah, bro, get a motel. <laughs> you don't get to stay in my house. Like, yeah, like we, we, we get that. But imagine you're in trouble in a foreign country by the skin of your teeth, and on your last drop of energy, you get to the U.S. Embassy, and they let you sit in the park bench in front of it. The, the heart of the countryman has grown cold, even to their fellow countrymen. But in the evening, in verse 16, an old man came in from his work in the field. He, he was from the hill country of Ephraim, but he was residing in Gibeah where the people were Benjaminites. When he looked up and saw the traveler in the city square, the old man asked, where are you going and where do you come from? He answered him, we're traveling from Bethlehem and Judah to the remote hill country of Ephraim where I am from. I went to Bethlehem and Judah, and now I'm going to the house of the Lord. If you have the CSV, you also see the note there is to my house. If you recall, uh, he, he probably thinks he's a house priest worship at his own house with his own false gods similar to the old the, the previous Levite no one has taken me into his home although there's straw and feed for the donkeys and I have bread and wine for me my concubine and the servant with us there is nothing we lack so he's saying no one's taking us in and we're not going to be a drain like we have everything all we need is a little roof and a bed like all we need is somewhere to stay we won't be a drain on your finances at all I have all that stuff I just want a place to stay Old man, welcome. I'll take care of everything you need. Only don't spend the night in the square. So he brought him to his house and fed the donkeys. Then they washed their feet and ate and drank. So there is an old man in the city who still holds the Israelite standards. And he welcomes them in. The Israelite standards, the, the way of life for the Israelites as revealed in the, the books of Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy, they reveal that, that their way of life is to be one of loving God and loving others. Like, that's what this is. Life with Yahweh is one where you know that you're loved by him. You trust that, and so then you uh, can, can fully 
joyfully go outward and love him and love others and give your life away to love others. Like, that's just the idea. And so, like, so much so that, you know, no, I'll feed him. I'll take care of you. I'll do, I'll do all this. He houses them, feeds them, washes their feet. And in and, and one sense, you feel like this is a story of how one practicing Israelite can make an impact. Yeah, there's, one, there, there's no one else that's here, but one, one. It kind of reminds you of like when Moses was like, can I, if there's a hundred faithful people, well, let me think about it, no, 50, uh, 20, uh, three, one. How about one? If there's one faithful person, will you not destroy this city? But you got that impact here, but like there's one person can make a, there's one city, this city is unfaithful, but here's one Israelite caring for his people but but that's not the account that's not the story the the bible is honest seriously honest about the depravity of man of humans the corruption of our souls the capability and the ability to do evil they avoided jebus that is jerusalem you see that they avoided foreign canaanites to find safety and hospitality and they go to countrymen, to their Israelites, who act like Canaanites. Inhospitable and unsafe. The very thing they were trying to avoid by going, not going, to this city, because these are strangers, these are people don't follow our ways, these are people don't practice our ways, these are people that, that are in covenant commitment with Yahweh, and so, so they won't know how to handle us and to serve us and to welcome us in so we'll go to our people and our people no no our people look just like the Canaanites our people act just like the Canaanites our people act as if they are unaware of Yahweh and, and what he wants your life to be one of loving him and loving others but even worse than that how bad has judges gotten For I think almost 20 weeks now, we've talked about the growing cancer of the idolatry and the canonization where they are picking up the other gods and either replacing Yahweh, their gods, the God of the Bible, the God of their fathers, and we're either replacing him with Bells and Asterisks and the Canaanite gods, one that one's a storm god and one's a sun god, and, and they'll they'll either replace Yahweh with them or they'll They'll keep Yahweh in some of his stuff and then add these others and have kind of a syncretistic, polytheistic, like kind of like an everyday normal life now. I have a pantheon of gods that I kind of submit to and ways of life and philosophy that I submit to, and I, I kind of buffeted my way through it, and now on my plate is this buffet of philosophies and religions and spiritualities, but it's what I've chosen, and so it's, it's what really is, works for me. Even worse, he finds Israel's own Sodom and Gomorrah. That's how bad it's gotten. With Samson, we saw even the, even the deliverer, the one who's supposed to rescue them from Canaan oppression and then to lead them to, to follow Yahweh. He, he's corrupt. He's broken. He chooses himself. The Israelites' way of life is loving God and loving people, but in the fall, in 
the fall when our first parents disobeyed and distrusted the voice of the father in the fall our love imploded on itself and now we're bent most concerned about ourselves and we're bent loving ourselves the Canaanite way of life is to to manipulate gods and to use others that's why we can see this this has gotten so bad that the Israelites have a city that's just like Sodom and Gomorrah when the fall happens and you think about everyone and love imploding on itself and if everyone lives that way what kind of society what kind of connection what kind of community is possible and that's what Judges is unveiling, is when everyone goes their own way and does what's right in their own eyes, not submitting to a moral standard above and outside themselves. It, it, it's destructive. Verse 22. While they were enjoying themselves, all of a sudden, wicked men, sons of Belial, literally, sons of the devil, wicked men of the city surrounded the house and beat on the door. But do you hear me? Sons of Belial. These are Israelites being called sons of the devil. They said to the old man who was the owner of the house, bring out the man who came to your house so we can know him. The owner of the house went out and said to them, please don't do this evil, my brothers. After all, this man has come into my house. Don't commit this horrible outrage. Here, let me bring out my own virgin daughter and the man's concubine now. Abuse them and do whatever you want to them. But don't commit this outrageous thing against this man. But the men would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine took her outside to them. They assaulted her and abused her all night. I'm not going to say that word. You see that? They assaulted her. It's specific. And abused her all night until morning. At daybreak, they let her go. Early that morning, the woman made her way back, and as it was getting light, she collapsed at the doorway of the man's house where her master was. This is one of the most sickening scenes of, in all of scripture. It, 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 it is a true crime story. It's a real life story of a real woman. Yeah, thousands of years ago, but a real woman. This is unveil our cards so that we don't believe these are fairy tales or Aesop's fables. These are true accounts of a living God in human history. So we're talking about a real woman here. And then you have this old man, subtle, just don't stay in the square makes sense. Like, I'll take care of her, whatever you need, just don't stand there. Why? Well, now we know there's wicked men in the city. There's sons of Belial in the city. And these men surround the house, surround surround the house. There's enough of them to surround the dwelling. 
uh, what was that for? Uh, the best thing you could think of like is some SWAT team coming in and trying to break down your house. But that's what you got. You're a guest there. You know, you don't know this city. You don't even know this old man you're staying with. And now there's tough men outside of a house surrounding it, beating on the door. And demand for the host to give them his male guests so they can know him. And this is where you see, oh, this is very similar to Genesis 19. This is very similar to Sodom and Gomorrah. And the old man comes to the Levites' help, but offers the women as replacement sacrifices. His own daughter and the Levites' concubine. He offers, he offers his own daughter in replacement. Don't do this to this man, the guest. The honor, the honor of me hosting this, for, this, this man that doesn't love is more important. The honor of being known as a host that, that takes care of men is more important than my own daughter and your concubine, and I'll tell that even for you, I will say it for you. I'll offer her, and I'll offer her. You see, again, the objectification, the using for whatever means. People are doing whatever is right in their own eyes. There's no king. And in one sense, we've talked about that, 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 that gives hope over and over again to that there's going to be a king, and we get King Saul, but really we're looking for King David. <laughs> but when King David showed up, he also leads them into evil. And some of the consequences of his evil is that his son, Amnon, does the same to his sa sister Tamar as these men are about to do to this woman. And in 2 Samuel 13, King David essentially does nothing. Says nothing, helps in no meaningful way. Just tries to stop his other son from killing this son. That's it. Men can do horrific acts of evil against women. And men can do passive evil by not doing justice. That's when Micah confronts us with love, mercy, do justice. The, the response of abuse matters. The response to someone who's been abused matters. Silence is deafening. And selfish vengeance for you also speaks volumes. Phyllis Tribble writes, Amnon reduces Tamar to the state of a disposable object. Amnon barely speaks of her as a person. She is a thing Amnon wants to throw. She is a thing Amnon wants thrown out. To him, Tamar is trash. Now, it's similar to language about Amnon's dad, David, when he saw Bathsheba. When he saw her, he inquired about the woman. And what happened? His servants reminded him that she had a name, and she had a father, and she had a husband. Not, who is that woman? 
No, no. She has a name. And she has a father. And she has a husband. But he pushed all that aside and saw an object for his pleasure. And Amnon does the same thing. And so do the men here in Judges 19. Now in Judges, what's interesting is that there's nameless anonymity. We talked about this a little bit last week, but when this happens in Judges, it's usually to, to represent, like this Levite kind of represents the general Levites, kind of every Levite in general. And this concubine kind of represents the women in Israel and so forth. But because everyone did as he saw fit, what, what the author is showing us is that every host in Israel is capable of horrific acts like the Benjamites. And every guest could be mistreated and every woman could be assaulted, could be a victim of assault and murder and dismemberment. The, the nameless woman is a hard dose of reality of what happens to anonymous victims of crimes, of anonymous perpetrators of crimes against humanity. This world is truly fallen, broken, not as it should be. God has an enemy and he's chosen violence over and over and over again. And so I said a response to abuse matters. So I, I, let me just speak to that first. Many, many victims suffer in silence. When I, when I served at the Paradox, and Paradox continues to serve TCU in significant ways, when I was there, I knew a lot of victims of this kind of assault met with many dozens probably a hundred I know suffering in this, this type of way and the silence and the, the fear of going to someone and telling someone else of what even happened and the fear of even at this point still being believed that this is true because we have a societal impulse, right, to, to blame the victim. To just like, ah, you. But well, what were you doing? Where were you at? What were you thinking? How did you get there? Were you not thinking about what might happen? Like, yeah, those are all the first questions to this, this person. And then they're often blamed for their symptoms after the fact of what's happened to them. So... Let me just tell you some things not to say because this would just be helpful for all of us. Or some helpful things not to say. So if David says nothing to, to Tamar, and you'll see the Levite uh, says, get up. That's what he says to his wife. There's got to be a better response. More than those two, there's got to be a better response. Here's some things not to say. Let me start there because they shame, blame, or doubt the victim. Here's some things. I know how you feel. You don't. Saying that, they, they know you don't know. I understand. They know you don't understand. You're lucky that blank. That's my least favorite, I think. 
you're lucky that this didn't happen, or you're lucky that it didn't go this far, you're lucky it didn't continue, you're lucky it was only once, you're lucky. It'll take some time, but you'll get over it. Not usually helpful. Asking for more details about what happened usually re-victimizes the person that's having to walk through the intimate details of what happened. Don't worry, it's going to be all right. What do you mean it's going to be all right? Try to be strong. Uh, I was wrong. This is my least favorite. It was God's will. Time heals all wounds. Here's some things I think would support and encourage a victim, and, and this is not my own things. This is me learning 15 years ago from Justin Lindsay Holcomb on, on how to care for those that have, that have experienced assault in this way and are living the devastating effects of this. Here's some encouraging things to say. I believe you. Thank you for telling me. Thank you. Thank you for telling me. How can I help? I'm glad you're talking with me. What I found is just if I can be, if I can, me personally, feel what I'm really feeling about what I've just heard, if I can communicate that honestly, very helpful. Like I'm angry. I'm angry what's happened to you. It wasn't your fault. I'm glad you're safe now. Your, your reaction is not an uncommon response. You're not going crazy. These are normal reactions following an assault. It's okay to cry. I can't imagine how terrible your experience must have been. That's the truth. A gentle answer. Proverbs says a gentle answer turns away wrath. And you think about the person that's in that situation, have a lot of feelings, but probably anger of what's been done to them. And, and how can you serve them? Speaking these things gently to them. Back to the wicked men for a minute. The man or woman. I'm not going to let everyone, anyone off the hook. For all of us. The man or woman driven by lust is not consumed with desire for a person, but consumed with selfish pleasure. Once the pleasure is grasped, the person discarded. C.S. Lewis in The Four Loves writes it this way. How much he, the lustful man, cares about the woman as such may be gauged by his attitude to her five minutes after five minutes after fruition. One does not keep the carton after one has smoked the cigarettes. And so what do we see here? Men that are takers instead of lovers, men who are users instead of givers, and the husband is lumped in the same Category, verse 27. When her master got up in the morning, opened the door of the house, and went out to leave on his journey. 
can you assume there? He went back inside. He most likely slept. He most likely got up, ate, and was ready to go home. He opened the doors to leave. He's ready to go back. All right, it's inconsequential. That object is lost to me. I will move on. But he opens the door. And there was the woman, his concubine, collapsed near the doorway of the house with her hands on the threshold. Get up, he told her. Let's go. But there was no response. There was no response. She said nothing. So the man put her on his donkey and set out for home. When he entered his house, he picked up a knife. He took hold of her. Can you see this? I'm trying not to say all these things. This is a does this to her, okay, and then sends her out throughout the territory. Twelve pieces for twelve tribes. Everyone who saw it said, nothing like this has ever happened or has been since the day the Israelites came out of the land of Egypt until now. Think over it, discuss it, and speak up. An object. Not a wife to protect. Not a wife to love through sickness and health. He sends her out to 12 tribes as a call to arms. He stayed away from Jebus to avoid the dangers of the Canaanites. But when he gets to an Israelite city, they have become Danaanites, Canaanites, dangerous, predators. And when good men do nothing, evil flourishes. And so this woman is dead. And going back to Samuel 13, Tamar lives the rest of her life as a desolate woman. But in her story, why I wanted to include this is because this story, Judges 19, ends with finality, with no sense of hope. Tamar's story, we can begin to see hope after evil. And it's in this one phrase she asks, and it's this poignant phrase that she asks. Before Amnon touches her and after, she comes back to it. But this question is, where, where can I go with my disgrace? Where can I go? Now, it's sad for her as well. I said there's, you can begin to see hope in her. For Tamar, she ends her life, all that we know, living as a desolate woman, with nowhere to go with her disgrace, particularly in light of her father, the king, not coming in to serve, help, guide her after the fact. Where can I go with my disgrace? That is, I think that is a major question for any of us that have been assaulted in some form or fashion. Where can I go with this? With my sense of damaged goods, where do I go? With my feelings of dirtiness and, and filthiness and used up, feelings of shame, and like what, where do I go with this? Where do I go? 
Well, you, you don't go to Samson. You don't go to these other judges. You don't go to King David. You go to the one that all these had a little bit of a shadowy figure of. You go to Jesus. Why? Why? Because Jesus fulfills this beautiful reality that you see in Leviticus 16 that there's these two goats at the Day of Atonement and one takes the penalty, the, the wrath for the sins of the people and then one goat takes the shame and, and pulls the, the people's sins away from them, symbolic, saying, hey, you're no longer defined by these. These no longer are attached to you. We can no longer see these. You are clean. They are not on you. And Jesus' family, if you've been a Christian for a while, you know that you know, you know that Jesus died for the penalty of your sin. He died for you in your place. Do you also know that the sins that you've done and also that have been done to you were put on him? Like the second goat. And so that most evil thing that you've endured that's in relation to, to this woman or Tamar, the good news is what that person did to you is not the defining point of your life. What Jesus has done to you is the defining marker of who you are. Because no matter what has been done to you, whatever shame has been put on you, no matter how you feel, he not only pays for your sin, but he also washes you clean of what's been done to you. That defilement is what the Day of Atonement is speaking of. All that sense of dirty, used up, damaged goods being defiled, that's also why Jesus died for you. To take that stain from you, to remove it, to pull it on himself. Isaiah 53 has that idea of the, the priest putting the hands of uh, two hands on the goat and confessing the sins of the people. And, and what I'm telling you is that the worst thing, the worst thing that you can think of, the worst thing that honestly has been done to you, the worst thing that's truthfully that I've experienced in my life has been dealt with and removed from me by King Jesus. That's where you can go with your disgrace. I want you to be very clear on this. We're really good at talking about our sins. We're not good about dealing with the sins done to us. And if that love implodes, what we do, we, we isolate, we pull away, we withdraw. There's so many options we can do. We can go self as vengeance. What I love is the idea that you can go to Jesus because here you've got this Levite, the priest, who cuts her up and sends her out as a call to arms. As a call to arms. To the 12 tribes to say, see this, speak up, talk about this. Why? Do you seen what other Israelites have done to me? Do you see what's going on? It, like, justice needs to be meted out. Something needs to change. He sends her out as a call to arms, but Jesus, the high priest, doesn't sacrifice someone else, but gives himself up as the sacrifice 
dies our death and is set up on a public cross as a call, not a call to arms, but a call to the war is over. There's no more fighting. It is finished. Peace has come to earth through the God-man Jesus. That's what he's saying. It's over. Here's a sacrifice. I'm dying in all your place so that it's over. So those feelings, if this is you, those feelings of guilt, that anger, that shame, maybe that denial, good news is there's someone more powerful than your assaulter, more beautiful than your perpetrator, someone who loves can genuinely remove the stain of others' sin against you. I want you to believe that, to take that in, to receive that. To let his love wash over you. Most of the men, women, that I've talked throughout my life usually tell a similar story of wanting to take a shower after something of this nature. I find it wildly beautiful that Ephesians 1 talks about the Father showering, lavishing us with his love. And that's what I mean. I want his love to wash over you and remove and wash off that defilement and let it go down the drain and let you cling to this is who my Savior is this is the good man because he's the God man he's the good man there's also two other things I want to think about just in application my two things really quickly, okay? Number one, be hospitable. In line with our rallying cry, being hospitable, welcoming, <coughs> to define, welcoming non-believers into our homes is a best practice for evangelism, okay? Now, don't detain people, all right, for five days, and then say, well, this guy told me to, right? No, don't tell the cops that. I know all the Benbrook cops. They know me. I didn't tell them that, okay? Don't detain. But showing that hospital, actually seeing your home as a hub for mission is how the kingdom of God has welcomed, how, how, the, how God has welcomed you as kingdom is for you to think about all of your resources as uh, tools and resources for advancement of his kingdom. Hospitality. And two, that was number one. Number two, men in general. Can I just tell you all, men, 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 even the one walking out on me, men, treat, <laughs> it's the worship leader, sorry. <laughs> just so, it, so everyone in the front row knows, like, whoa, that was, that was nasty. 
than Kalaga. No. Number two, men. Treat women. Now, I, I can go to the, all the, like, 20 texts about husbands do this to your wives, okay? But I'm talking to all men. I'm not talking with your wife. I'm talking about all men. Treat women as precious and delicate. Your physical strength is to provide and protect, not take and use. Now, what, 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 what is, where am I pulling this? 1 Timothy 5.2 says, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father and younger men as brothers and older women as mothers and younger women as sisters in all purity. To treat them like your sisters, like your mothers. The first line of defense against lust is your mind. And if you believe the truth that all Christian women are your family, not objects, it will change your world. And if you believe that all Christian women need Jesus, not your lust, you're fighting. Do you hear me? You're actually on the battlefield fighting if you'll believe those two things. Treat the women here as your sisters. Treat them as your moms. Treat them as your daughters. They are not objects. So we got into this mess because idolatry leads to dehumanization, dehumanization, and then dehumanization usually is first against women and children, but, but the good news of Jesus and then the response of us to worship him, do you know what that does? Worshiping Jesus makes you more human, more loving, more joyful, more gracious, more helpful. Where you don't use those people, women, whoever, in your lives for your satisfaction, but you're there knowing, hey, I am so loved by Jesus. I am so secure in my relationship with the good man and the God man. I'm so secure in his love for me. I, I can love him and I can love others. And I can do that forever. And I'm going to get to do that forever. That, that's what changes so with a heavy story and seven different kind of points, I'm going to pray and ask for the Spirit to work in us.